Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Yeah, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Man, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're unfamiliar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of First Thessalonians. And then as we make our way through, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Would you join with me as we read the text together? Paul writes, and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Would you pray with me once again? God, we read that this is to make for encouragement in our lives. This is, in some sense, to help us to navigate our experiences of grief in the realization of loss. And so, God, as we come to this room, many of us are experiencing Uh, Some of us have experienced the physical death of those in our lives. Some of us experience the death of our dreams, the death of our professions, the death of relationships. And God, in each of those, what we need this morning is encouragement from you. And so God, I pray that that encouragement this morning would find itself nesting in our hearts by the power of your spirit. Help us to place our hope and trust not in our ability to look beyond, to look past. But God, help us to place our trust in you. You are the safe harbor in the storms of life. You are the sure and steady anchor. God, this morning we came in of people needing to hear a word from you, needing you to draw close to us. And so I pray that we would humbly come before you, that we would confess our sin to you, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even as you forgive us according to your word in 1 John. God, we pray for those this morning who do not know you, that they are far from you, that they might come to know you, might submit their lives to you, and might experience the encouragement the consolation, and the cross of Christ. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I was probably in sixth grade. I can remember where I was standing as my notes were about to try and take flight. I could either make this really long or really short. You just never know. And so I'm, I'm standing in this house, 
And uh, so you walked in the front door over here. You walked across some tile. There were five or six steps, and there was a landing, and the stairs turned, and they went up. And as I'm standing there, I remember my dad coming in from work, and for whatever reason, uh, I, I had heard, my mom had told us that a friend of my dad's had passed away. And for whatever reason, it seemed appropriate at that moment as he walked in through the door, as he walked up the stairs, as he's on the landing, and I come out of the living room, I look at him, and I say, I heard your friend kick the bucket. It still, it still sounds bad, like 30 years later. And I, like, I, could, I just learned this phrase, and for whatever reason... I wanted to use it, and here was the moment. I hear your friend just kick the bucket. I remember him turning and looking at me, hanging his head, and walking up the stairs. I brought him no encouragement with my use of that word, right? Man, I've got a friend who lives in Tennessee. He just turned 50 today. Uh, Their son went to his senior prom this week. He'll graduate next week. And in the next three or four days, his wife's going to die. She's had terminal cancer for the last two years. And every bit of hope they've had has been in some far-fledged, far, far, you know, belief in some medical miracle. And so really over the last year, they've had this awareness that no matter what they did, no matter what approach they took to this, that Bethany's going to die. And so they've watched this cancer progressively move through and, and cripple motor function and, and cripple memory. But as they've approached this, what they found is that they've had no ability to place hope and trust in medical intervention. They've had no ability to place hope or trust in it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. What they've had to do is to give themselves to the experience of the grief, which is what it is to lose someone you love. Death is not okay. Death is not something we we simply skip over and say, it's okay, it's fine, it's not a big deal. Death is something for us that should be deeply painful. And it's something that wounds us. For far too many of us, death is something that we try and kind of keep out there. We're young. We think death is something that could never happen to us because we're 10, we're 12, we're 16, we're 18. Man, I can remember when my first friend died at the end of second grade. I can remember going into high school and my friend walking across the street at a fair was struck and killed by a car. Death will mark your life. It will absolutely mark your life. But what the Apostle Paul gives us in this passage is the way Christians can offer appropriate encouragement to one another when, not if, but when death touches those near us. So Paul writes to this group of Christians in Thessalonica. And you'll remember, they've not been Christians long. They've only been Christians for maybe a year or two. And so they're, they're wrestling with the understanding, okay, so you say Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for us But there are those in our group who've died. And and we're not really sure what to do with this and how to understand this. And and, and our former manner of existence, some of us were were polytheists, some of us were atheists, 
some of us believed that the gods were just incredibly capricious. And so whatever the gods' moods and whatever they were in, this is what would happen to these people. And so, Paul, we have no real understanding of what's going to happen to those who've died already. And so they're, they're touched with this understanding. Okay, for us, for us who are still alive, there is a hope of Christ's return. But what about those who have died? And, and how do we even experience grief? And are we even allowed to grieve? And are we even allowed to be sad? And is this even okay? Aren't Christians supposed to be joyous? Aren't we supposed to be overcome with joy? Is there a place for Christian grief? Paul says, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed about all those who have died before you. Why? So that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. Where is the Christian grief? Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what agency? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what end? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept where? Kept in heaven for you. Who are you? You are those who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Your salvation is steady. Your hope is secure. The hope you have isn't some passing indifference to the reality of death and the grief that assails us. The hope you have is living and vibrant and is placed in you by the mighty power of Jesus. And so he gives to us the freedom to grieve. Do you see this? This invitation to grieve. For too many Christians, there's this idea of stoicism as necessary equipment for enduring life. Don't be too happy. Be kind of here. Be stolid. Be stoic. Your wife dies, your kid dies, your, your family leaves you, people betray you. Your life is ruined. You're unfazed by this. This is not Christianity. Paul invites us to grieve. One of my favorite accounts of Jesus, and I think it's one of my favorite accounts because it's so incredibly humanizing, is in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Jesus is there with the disciples and he finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick and Lazarus is about to die. So Jesus does something really peculiar in this. He waits. He stays distant. He stays apart until the point that Lazarus dies. So Jesus finds out Lazarus is dead. He goes and ostensibly it looks like he's just going to pay his respects. He's just going to honor the life of his friend. He's just going to go for a visit. And while he's on his way to visit and on his way to see them, what we see is that one of Lazarus' sisters comes out to greet Jesus. She comes out and she runs up to him. Look at John chapter 11. Jesus goes there, and when, when she comes out, 
It says, when it was about two miles off, verse 19, and many of the Jews had come, Mary and Martha, to console them concerning their brothers. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Listen, if you'd been here, you could have stopped this, you could have put the stopper in death. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now she hears this, and her mind goes to the resurrection. This kind of end times resurrection. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection. In the last day, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus goes on, and he walks towards the place where Lazarus is laying in the tomb. In the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, every kid should, should try and memorize this. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now listen, why is this helpful for us? Jesus, when he hears that Lazarus is sick, knows Lazarus is going to die. Jesus, when he hears Lazarus is sick, knows he's going to die, knows he's going to go there, and knows he's going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. Even still, Jesus, in that moment, minutes before he raises Lazarus back to life again, is overcome with grief and he weeps. Do you think God wants you to be stoic? Jesus is giving articulation. He's giving you an invitation to grief. He's giving you an invitation to mourn. Your grief and sadness is not too much for God to handle. But your stoicism, your hardness of heart, and your refusal to be broken by the sadness of life, this keeps you from experiencing the consolation, the comfort of our God and King. Will you allow yourself to grieve? You see, because this invitation to grief is decidedly different from the grief of those who have no hope. Matt McCullough, in speaking about this, writes these words in his book, Remember Death. He says, when we recognize death's hold on us in everything we love, we won't be surprised that life isn't what we want it to be. Frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction, these belong among the many faces of death. The pockets of darkness that make up death's shadow. These experiences are normal, not surprising. Death awareness resets my baseline expectation about life in the world. This honesty about death prepares me for what is truly surprising. That God the Son subjugated himself to the limitations, brokenness, and death that are normal for us. That he would join me in my experience of the normal trials of life in the valley of the shadow of death. That he would do this precisely so that he can revolutionize what is normal. brokenness I experience, the frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and pain is not a sign of God's absence. It is the reason for the presence of his Christ. This is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came because he knows that we're thirsty for more than we've tasted for. 
He knows that every meal has left us hungry, and he came to provide living water, the bread of life, full and free satisfaction for all those who eat and drink from him. He came that we might have hope. He came that we might be set free in the midst of these things. So Paul goes on, he says, listen, for because Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. John 14, 6, speaking to this idea of what it is to be through Jesus, Jesus speaking to the disciples says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in this, so in this, we see this line of demarcation. We see the splitting of all things. Those who in real sense may have hope and those who in a real sense might not have hope. You see, there is no hope for those who are not found to be in Christ. There is no hope. There is no possibility of escape for those who refuse to place their hope and trust in Jesus. And so he's inviting us to see the resurrection of Jesus as a conduit of hope for us. You see, but if you see this life, if you see this life in all of its trappings as incredibly amazing, and on top of what is incredibly amazing, you make the assumption that the resurrection, that life spent in eternity with Jesus is just icing on the cake of that which is already good, then the resurrection will never rise and have an impact in your life sufficient to help you navigate the grief you will surely experience. This life and all that touches it is tinged with death. Death is the normal experience that all of us go through throughout our lives. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the safe harbor in the storms of life. Paul goes through, and he's not going to answer all the questions of, uh, for those of us who are preoccupied with what it's going to look like if we're raptured, when we're raptured, what does a millennial reign and all these things look like. So if this is you, prepare to be phenomenally disappointed. Paul was not concerned with this, and so we're not going to find ourselves concerned with it this morning. There are a myriad of books you can read, uh, some of which I have in my library, others of which you can order for an exorbitant amount of money, and that's what you should spend if you really want to plumb the depths of this. Amen? For those of you who have no idea what I talked about, your life is all the richer. Paul goes on, and so he, he's trying to craft an understanding of, of how these things operate and what this is going to look like for these Thessalonians. And remember, the point behind this is their encouragement and their consolation, not merely their information. He says, since Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then in 15 through 17, he shows us how. He shows us how this is going to work. He says, we declare this to you by a word of the Lord. We have heard this before. We recognize this from the Old Testament. We've seen it in the teachings of Jesus. We give this to you as the true and authoritative word of God. That we who are alive, and see, he's looking around, he says, look, you, you are alive, you, you, I think you're alive, and you, you're alive. We who are alive, people who are alive in any given time, who happen to be left until the coming of the Lord, coming of the Lord, it was Paul's presumption, and I think he lived in the expectation that Jesus was going to come back while he was alive. (coughs) Goodness. And that is the way that you and I all should live. 
We live with an eager anticipation and a hunger that Jesus would come back and that he would set all things right. And so we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so he lets them know, listen, if, if you happen to be alive at the coming of the Lord, you and I, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's looking at the, the ordering of these things. And so they're saying, okay, okay, okay. So I get that all those who've died, there's a plan and a purpose for them. He says the plan and the purpose for them is that they not come after us, but in fact they precede us. And then he describes how it's going to happen. He says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. You'll remember in the opening of Acts, the disciples are gathered around and they're visiting with Jesus. And Jesus does what? He ascends into the clouds. And so he goes up and the disciples are like, I can still see him. I can still, and, and then the angel of the Lord comes up and it's like, what are you looking at? He's not there, but he's going to come again in the same way. And like, okay, I get this. Jesus is going to come in the same fashion that he departed in. It says he's going to rend the heavens. He's going to descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. An archangel is going to give the command and all of heaven's armies will flood the earth. And he said, the sound of a trumpet globally will be heard. And then he says, this is going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now, what is that going to look like? I have no idea. I think uh, there are parts of my mind that just kind of go to places. And I think, huh, that could be neat. I have no imagination for this. There are lots of people with creative imaginations that depict this and write books about this and make fortunes of money and others who do this that make no money. What, what, I, anyway, I have no idea. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's not written to lead us to be preoccupied with what it's going to look like. It's written to give us encouragement. How many family members do you have that put their faith and trust in Jesus that have been gone many years? And still when you think about them, there's a sense of grief. There's a sense of longing. There's a sense of, man, I wish I could have had that one more conversation. I think about uncles. I think about my aunt. I think about grandparents. I think about friends who died that... I suppose I bring myself some comfort thinking they seem to suggest that they were a Christian at his funeral. I don't think I ever asked. I don't think I ever really knew. Man, I hope somebody knew. I hope the people that talked about how much God loved him and how much God cared for him, I hope they knew something about Brandon that I didn't know. I never heard him mention the Lord. I never heard him mention his faith. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but at most funerals you go to, everybody becomes a Christian. Everything the person's ever done suddenly is baptized in the light of the gospel. The Bible gives us a clear picture that the way is narrow. There are far fewer people who will leave this life entrusting the Lord than people who will leave this life not trusting Him. We try and give people comfort making claims on the dead that the dead have not claimed for themselves. That's a point of grief for us. When a person who does not know Jesus dies, 
That is the end for them. There is no hope for their salvation. There is no hope for their redemption. All decisions for Jesus have got to be made in this life. The only encouragement we have is encouragement for those who place their hope and trust in Jesus. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The terrific promise for the Christian is that once you come to know Jesus, there is never a moment in your life when you are not with him. At the moment you come to know him, his spirit dwells within you. At the moment either of his coming or your earthly departure, you are there in his presence. And in this moment of unveiling, you will be with him bodily. There before the Lord. You will always be with the Lord. So Paul hits the end of this and the only command in this whole passage, 13 through 18 is so then encourage one another with these words. Paul writes this not to uh, somehow introduce from a transition from sexual immorality to the judgment day of the Lord, an odd segue. He issues this word because he recognizes there are people hurting in the church there in Thessalonica. And they're hurting because their brothers and sisters in Christ have died and they don't know what to do. And they don't know if it's okay to be sad, and they, they don't know if it's, what that should even look like for them. The resurrection gives us an opportunity to have hopefulness in the midst of our grief. But listen, if you're here today, if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, there is no hope of this reality for you. There's no bright, sunshiny day. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no bygones be bygones. There's no, you're going to get up there and God's going to judge your good deeds versus your bad deeds. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin are death. The only way to atone for your sin is through the blood of Jesus. I want to be able to give you hope this morning. I'm not willing to lie to you. I'm not willing to help you feel better about the predicament of your sin. I'm begging with you. If you do not know Jesus, the Bible tells us that God has numbered our days, but none of us know how many days we have. Too many people's lives are seemingly cut short. Friend, you don't know how many days you have. You don't know what this afternoon or tomorrow will bring. If you want hope, if you want security, if you want your loved ones at your funeral to be able to grieve as those who have hope, place your faith and trust in Jesus. There's no other way to come to the Father. There's no other way to escape the penalty and the punishment of your death. All those who seek to find hope outside of Christ lead their families only in an experience of grief. Would you place your hope and trust in Jesus?
I want to close from these words of Martin Luther King Jr. Speaking about a month after his I Have a Dream speech on September the 15th, 1963, he's at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And he's presiding over the funeral of four little girls who were killed in a KKK bombing. So he's trying to make sense of a horrific atrocity which has just been perpetrated. This is what he says. He says, I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, I pray for those of us who have recently experienced grief. We've lost husbands, wives, children. Those of us who are facing the anticipated loss just around the corner. Help us in our reflection on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to give us hope in the midst of our grief. Comfort in the middle of our sorrows. And God, we beg you for the salvation of those who've yet to place their faith and trust in you. Jesus Christ, the living hope, the sure and steady anchor, who gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All the riches of heaven set aside for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. God, would you move and stir in the hearts? Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, lead them to an understanding of conviction of sin, that in being convicted of sin, that they would confess your Son as Savior and Lord, that they would want to come to know Jesus. God, we ask these things, and we pray for your blessings upon them. In Christ's name, amen.